has blessed us with wonderful musicians, hasn't he? Musicians and singers, and I, I thank you. I'm blessed every time we come. I thank the Lord for it. I'm, music is one of the things in life, not a, uh, Sherry can tell you, I'm typically not a very emotional person. Uh, not a lot of highs and lows just kind of stare me all the time. But man, singing about Jesus just messes me up every time. I just got to tell you, it gets me. So uh, uh, thank you for blessing us with that. Take your Bibles this evening and go to Psalm 126. We've been in our study in the book of Psalms a long time. And some of you are thinking, man, I wish you'd hurry up and get done. Um, well, we're in 126, so we're getting there, okay? There's 150 of them. But uh, matter of fact, we've this is the 184th lesson in the book of Psalms. You say, how in the world do you know that? Because in my notes right here, it says Psalm 184, 2020. Uh, so I know how many there are, okay? I keep track of that. But uh, Psalm 126, this psalm is uh, just a few verses, but it is, it is a powerful psalm. It is a psalm about deliverance. We can all relate to deliverance because if you're saved, God did the greatest deliverance in the universe. He delivered us from sin and saved our souls. So we can all relate to deliverance. And there's different kinds of deliverance in life, but God's the deliverer from all things that, that we need to be rescued from. The psalmist here is praising God and talking about deliverance. Now, what deliverance is he writing about here? He's writing about the captivity. He's writing about the deliverance of Israel from captivity. You know the story. In 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came and, and breached the wall after two years of a siege. They breached the wall in Jerusalem and razed the city. They just they destroyed it, destroyed Solomon's temple, killed in the street, untold tens of thousands of Hebrews. And really, the Babylonians were angry, and they were taking out their frustration. The Jews had held out for two years, and when they finally got in there, they just really hammered them. And then those who survived were uh, force marched about 800 miles back to Babylon through the desert, so no telling how many of them died on the way back uh, to Babylon. But anyway, before all that happened, think about this now. Before the captivity began, God prophesied that they would be delivered. In other words, God revealed that here's my plan. I'm going to chasten you. You're going to go into captivity, but then I'm going to bring you back. In fact, God told them exactly how long they would be there. Let me read you a couple of verses. Jeremiah 29.10. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work or my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Before they ever were captured, before they ever went into captivity, God said, oh yeah, and after you go there, 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. Now, Daniel, who was right after Jeremiah, maybe overlapped a little bit, Daniel's in Babylon. And when we get to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's reading Jeremiah's prophecy. Now, I don't want to get too far into that, but think about that for a minute. Here's one prophet of God reading the prophecy from another prophet of God. Does that not lend credence to the fact that, you know, Daniel recognized God speaking through Jeremiah? Listen to Daniel 9, chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, that would be Darius, the Medo-Persian king, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, the prophet, 
that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So here's Daniel in captivity. And you can almost see Daniel get up one day and go, man, I wonder how long we're going to be here. And so he starts reading the Bible. When you have questions about what God's doing, where are you to go? You want to read the Bible, right? So Daniel pulls out Jeremiah's prophecy and goes, oh, yeah, Jeremiah said right here that God said 70 years and we're going we're gonna to go back to the land. Now, here's what's neat about this. Not only did God prophesy before it happened that he's going to send them back after 70 years, but the way God does it is amazing, which is what the psalmist is praising God about here for deliverance. God uses, or used in our sense, a pagan king from a pagan nation to accomplish his purpose in the life of his people. God used Cyrus the Great, a Persian king, to make a decree to let Israel go back to the land. You say, where is that at? I'm glad you asked. Ezra chapter 1. Let me read you the verses. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this. This is amazing right here. Listen to this. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, first year, the dude's just in office, first year, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's the third time, a reference, you know, two times back to Jeremiah, that, hey, Jeremiah said we're going home after 70 years. Listen to this guy. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Listen to this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom. Listen, and also put it in writing. Is that, is that amazing to anybody? I mean, here is a pagan king who comes to office, and in his first year he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make this proclamation uh, you know, and I'm going to put it in writing so nobody misunderstands what I'm saying. Now listen to the rest of this, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Listen to this. All the kingdoms of the earth, listen, the Lord God of heaven's given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Get out of here. There's this Persian king who, you know, how does he even know about God? I guess some of them Jews living there were going, hey, our God said we're going home soon. You might want to listen to him. I don't know who's, I don't know who's talking to him. But apparently God's dealing with them. And, and, and Cyrus the Great says, hey, the Lord of heaven told me to build him a house in Jerusalem. And so I guess I better get to it. Listen to the rest of this, verse 3. He says to, he says to the people, who is among you of all of his people, meaning you Jews who are here captive? May his God be with him, listen, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. That's amazing. And then verse 4, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, meaning if you don't go back with him, the men of this place, let him help with silver and gold and goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say. But it sure, like, it sure sounds like here in his own personal testimony that Cyrus came to know who the real God was, doesn't it? That among all the pagan deities that he was familiar with and among all the people, Cyrus here is, is made a proclamation and then put it in writing and said, hey, the God, the God in, in Israel, he's God. That's pretty definitive. In other words, he's saying he isn't just, just a God, he isn't just one among many gods. He's the God. 
meaning he's the one that I should listen to. Now, I don't know if Cyrus was saved. Wouldn't it be cool if he is? Wouldn't it be cool if he was? And then we get to heaven, and there's Cyrus in heaven, you know, and I'll say, man, you did good. I read about it in the Bible. You, you did exactly what God said. But here's the point. <clears throat> God stirred up the heart of this man, this man who, whom you would think would have no chance of knowing who God is in, in Israel because he's, he's living and he's the king of a pagan nation who has all kinds of deities and, and, and false religions, which we talked about this morning. And yet, isn't it wonderful that God stirred up the heart of this man and opened his eyes so that he understood who the real God is and isn't even more wonderful that he listened to God, that not only did God deal with his heart, but he said, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll send the people back. And, and God used this man to let the people go back and build the temple and reestablish Israel. What kind of makes us ashamed today as Christians? I mean, a little bit. Think about it. God saves us, opens our understanding. We accept Jesus Christ. We, we get all the benefits, what Jesus did, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, adopted in the family of God, all the blessings of heaven. And then God says, hey, I want you to serve me. We go, no, not today. I mean, that's, that's how a lot of Christians operate. You know, Hey, I want you to serve me. I want you to share the gospel. I want you to invite your neighbor. I want you to care about people. I want you to love people. I want you to be nice to people. I want you to show them my love, share the gospel with them. Hey, how about teach the kids? How about teach your neighbor, teach your own kids, teach your children, teach your grandkids? And we go, no, I'm too busy today, God. Hmm. At least the king of Persia at this point said, okay, God, I'll do what you say. Glad I did. Now, the psalm is about that, okay? So all that was introduction. Look at verses 1 to 3 in Psalm 126. He speaks here of the joy, the joy of returning home. He said, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, those around them watching, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, I like the first part of this in verse 1. It's almost as if the psalmist said, man, we had to pinch ourselves and make sure we weren't dreaming. I mean, it was so, it was so wonderful when the king wrote the decree and said, y'all can go home. We looked at one another and said, is this some kind of trick? Is this real? I mean, can we really go home? In other words, they were, so, they were so overcome by the goodness of God and the unexpected blessing of God that they said, man, we must be dreaming. Anything like that happened to you in life? Something so good happened, you know, God does something so wonderful in your life that you think, man, is this real or am I just dreaming this? Is this really happening? Is God really doing all this in my life or, is this, or am I misunderstanding? I was reminded while I was reading this this week of Peter. Man, Peter's like my favorite New Testament guy. You know why? Because I'm just like him sometimes. I mean, because I can see me and Peter. You know, you ever, you ever open your mouth before you engage your brain? I know none of y'all have ever done that, but I have. You know, when the words are coming out, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I should have thought about that before I said it, right? Peter was like that. I mean, Peter would speak before he, before he really thought about it. You remember, you remember Herod in, in Acts chapter 12? Herod figured out that if I arrest the Christians, everybody's going to like me. So he arrested James, the brother of John, and executed him and, and killed him. And so then he arrested Peter, and he's going to execute Peter too, but it was Passover, it was Easter, so he put him in jail with a bunch of guards around him, chained him to two guards and said, hang on to him until after Passover, then we're going to execute him too, and it'll make everybody happy. Well, the church is, you, you go home and read this, this is a good passage. Well, in Acts 12, the church is praying, the Bible says, they got together in the house, I mean, they're praying without ceasing for Peter. I mean, they're lifting up to God, God, don't, don't let them kill Peter, we need him, you know, deliver him. And so in the middle of the night, 
on the next day when Herod's going to kill him, the Bible says that an angel showed up, and I like this, tapped Peter on the side and woke him up. What kind of peace do you have in Jesus if you're sleeping, chained between two guards in the middle of the night, right? So he wakes Peter up, and he says, hey, get up and come with me. And when he said that, the chains fell off of him, and they walk out through the first gate, and they walk out through the guards, and they all go up to the outer court, and they go out through the gate, and Peter's standing out there, and the angel goes, okay, get, you know, go on your way. And listen to what it says in Acts 12, 9. Listen to this. So he, Peter, went out of the, and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Same thing, Peter said, man, am I dreaming? You know, did God really just, just do this thing and, and deliver me out of here? What I want you to know is that, that sometimes we learn here that God does just marvelous things, doesn't he? I mean, let me put it this way. God always does marvelous things, even when we're not paying attention, all right? Even if it isn't something grandiose for, that, we, that we like look at and go, oh, wow, that's magnificent. Let me tell you something. If you're a child of God, He's always doing grand things in your life. He's always doing marvelous things in your life. And you don't even see it. I don't see it. That's the kind of God we serve. And sometimes when we see it, you know, you know what it is? We, when God lets us see it, so little is our faith, I think, sometimes that we're shocked. And we go, am I dreaming? Is God really doing this great thing for me? Did all of that stuff really just fall in order for me to do this thing or do that thing? And listen, it's not by accident. It's not by happenstance. It's not by, by, by just some freak nature that these things happen. We have a living God who can move the heart of Cyrus the king to let a bunch of people go back to where they came from. God can do that. And he did it in this passage, and the people uh, said, better pinch ourselves and make sure we're not dreaming. And then the psalmist said here, he said, on the way home, in other words, the remnant got together, and they're going back and said, man, there's laughing and singing. In other words, when we finally figured out that this is real and they let us out the gate and we headed, we're headed back to, the, back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem, he said, man, we're laughing and singing all the way. Man, we're, we're singing praises to God and laughing with one another and having joy. And, they're, and everybody's just going to say, man, we're just happy to express our thankfulness to God. And then I got to thinking about Christians today. And I got to thinking about our salvation experience and our response to that. Now, again, I, I, I know that God makes us all different. And I meet people that are, um, see, how, how could I, I, when I think of these things, sometimes I don't really know how to describe it, but I'll describe it the best I can. Sometimes you meet people who are bubbling over all the time. I mean, man, they're just, they're, you know, their shoelaces are tied right and they're happy. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're just you know, I mean, life is just a bed of roses and no matter what's happening, man, they're just boiling over. And, and God doesn't make everybody that way. You know what I mean? God just doesn't make everybody that way. I'm not particularly like that. You know what? I mean, I'm just not. But listen, how should we be with relation to God? These people are laughing and singing as they're going back to Jerusalem. And they're, they're happy. They're praising God. I would, I would suggest this. Where does this kind of joy come from? I'll tell you where it comes from today. <clears throat> you hear the word of God. And let me tell you something. Our relationship to God, I said it this morning, doesn't start with emotion. It starts with perception. It starts with understanding. It starts with God's word. When we read God's word or we hear it or somebody preaches it or somebody teaches it or, or in a conversation, this has happened to me before. I'll be talking to another brother or sister in Christ, and, man, they'll, they'll reference some Bible passage and make a point about it, and, man, it'll bless me. And I'll say, man, that's right. That's good stuff. 
when we perceive and the truth of what we understand reaches our heart about God, it creates of its own accord a joy that you didn't have to work up. Everybody follow me? In other words, you didn't have to manufacture it. In other words, the truth applied to my heart creates a response. Now, the responses are all different. They're all of different levels and different volumes. I went to a church one time where the response was guys got up and ran around the auditorium. Okay? I just hope it was genuine. I just hope that they were making laps around the room because they were so in love with Jesus. If that's why they were doing it, thumbs up, man, I'm good. Now, if you're doing it just to, you know, be religious and draw attention to yourself, then sit down, right? But if, you, but if the Word of God touches your heart, understand, touches your heart, and you just got to respond some way, that's what happened right here. These people are singing and laughing, not because they're doing it just to be doing it, because they can't help themselves, because they're so happy. They're so happy that God did something in their life, and they're moving toward the promised land again. Let me share with you how I think it happens in the salvation experience. And of course, having been saved, I can tell you how it happened to me. All right, when we hear the gospel for the first time as a lost man or woman, what happened? Well, as soon as you are by the power of the Holy Spirit, understand what's going on here. Like you hear this thing and you go, oh, dear me, right? The, f the first thing is, I would say shame and fear. Is that an emotion that you would have? You would say, once God reveals to us that we're lost and we think, man, I'm lost and my sin has offended God, and now I'm afraid. Now I'm afraid because God said the ways of the sin is death, and, and, and now I'm ashamed because I'm thinking, man, God sees everything I do. He's seen my life, and now I'm ashamed that I, that I have done all this stuff. And then that shame, listen, when you come to Jesus and you realize that he'll forgive you and you ask him to forgive you, it moves from shame and fear to relief and gratitude. Doesn't it? I mean, and all of a sudden, of a sudden you're going, Phew, Man, I'm glad you shared the gospel with me and I got saved. I'm glad, I'm glad that God forgave my sin. And so this, this relief, that, which then turns into gratitude, you say, God, why would you come and die on the cross for somebody like me? Why would you do that? You know, and the gratitude sets in. And then watch, when, when, the, when the shame and fear moves to relief and gratitude and you begin to grasp as you, as you begin to grow and the sanctification process kicks in, then, then the peace and joy really start to kick in. Because then you begin to understand all the stuff that you just believed that you didn't really fully understand. You understood enough to get saved, but you didn't really grasp it all until you started to grow. And then when you start to grasp it, then you even get more thankful, don't you? Because then you go, boy, boy I really was lost. And then God really did do a great work to save me. And now I really understand what happened. That peace and joy turns into laughter and singing, right? And it turns into laughter and singing, and it turns into praise, now, you see, now that's the right order. Listen to me very carefully here. That's the right order. Here's the wrong order. We bring everybody in here. We get them all worked up and get them excited and get them emotional. Don't you want to get saved and go, yeah, man, I'm saved because I'm happy. Okay, no. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. I don't want to bust your evangelistic bubble and all them souls that you've been tallying on the sheet in there. But that's not how it happens. The conviction has to come first. And listen, before people get saved, we've got to talk about sin, which doesn't make people jump up and down. Everybody understand what I'm saying? Because remember, when I first understand that I'm lost, there's shame and fear. And if there's no shame and fear, and there's no fear of a holy God, and there's no understanding that I'm separated and I've offended him, probably not going to be any salvation following that. I'm just being, being honest here, okay? So, so listen, these people say, man, we're singing and we're laughing. Why? Because they got it. They were in captivity, i.e. a picture of sin. 
God broke into their life, which God is, that's how you get saved. God breaks into your life. They understood, am I dreaming? Is God really doing this for me? Which we might say too, like, did God really, you know, am I dreaming? Did God really care about me enough to do that? Then God delivers them, which he did for us. Now they're singing and shouting all the way back to Jerusalem. Guess what we're doing? All the way to heaven, we're singing and shouting and praising God. That's the right order. What a beautiful picture here. What a beautiful picture of salvation and the response to salvation. Okay? I would say today, we need to do, listen, if we want people to get saved, here's what we got to do. We got to pray that God will be involved. Because no matter how good we are, how good we think we are, we can't get anybody saved. Okay? We need to pray that God will be involved. And then we got to share the gospel with them. We got to teach them the Bible. We got to say, thus saith the Lord. Not, not all the stuff that we manufacture today in life. That's how people get saved, okay? Now, the testimony. Look again at verses 2 and 3 very quickly. He said there, the psalmist said, Then our mouths was filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. We just talked about that. Look at verse 3. Well, the rest of verse 2. Then they said, listen, among the nations the Lord has done a great thing. You know what he's saying there? The nations around them looked at what God was doing, that, that Cyrus made this decree because he made it public. He put it in writing so everybody knows about it. I'm going to let these people go home. And the nations around them go, that's an amazing thing. Their God, look at what God did for them. He set them free. They're going back to the land. And the people surrounded said, boy, I never saw that coming. Never thought that would happen. Look at what God's doing in their life. Then that made me write another question down here. God does this to you when you're reading the Bible. I got to thinking, you know what? That's still a continuing picture of salvation, isn't it? We were lost. God delivered us, set us free. Man, we're singing. We're happy. The world out there, when they see that you're really saved and that, that you've understood, it's affected your heart, that you're glad that God saved you, you're thankful God saved you, and now you're praising God. And part of that praising God, listen to me, is obeying God, meaning now I have a heart, not that we do it perfectly because we all mess up, but the but the the majority of my effort in life, my desire in life is to please God. And when I fail him, I tell him I'm sorry and ask him to forgive me. And he says, I love you anyway. Keep on going. All right. When you live that way, guess what the world's going to say? Something happened to them. Something weird about that person. Why? Because they don't get it. Don't understand. And you, then, then that opens the door. You know what you say? Man, my God did a great thing for me. My God did a great thing for me. You want to know him? He can do a great thing for you too. I mean, I, it's a testimony. And I wrote down here in my notes and I circled it. Can anybody see a difference in your life? Does anybody see that you're different? Now the world will call it weird. They'll call it religious. They'll call it, they'll, call, they'll pick on you. They'll call you names. But let me ask you as a child of God, do you look different from the rest of the world? And the answer is yes or no. There's no, there's no... I mean, you know, well, you know, maybe, you know, no. Do you or don't you? Only you can answer that question. Well, you and God can answer that question. But you got to be different. Why? Because God made us different on the inside. You became a new creation in Christ. Well, the world sees it. Now, he has a prayer here. Look at verse 4. He prays to God. This psalmist says, man, we're rejoicing because we're set free. He said, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. He said, what in the world? Okay, here's what he's saying. He says, Lord, you did this great thing for us. 
and you, you moved the heart of a king and the, and, and the remnant came back. But he's really saying in verse 4, he's complaining a little bit. He's saying, Lord, in comparison to how many Jews lived there, there wasn't many that came back. Just a small group. And what he's saying, Lord, that's kind of like a dried up river. He said, Lord, I want you to send them like a flood. He said, I want them to come back like the streams in the south, like in the rainy season. I want, I want, I want them to flood back out of, out of Persia. I want them to come back. God, move them. Not just, a, not just a few, but many. God, bring a bunch of them back. A remnant left out of Persia and came back. Now, let me ask you a question. It's Sunday night, so think about this for a minute. When the king makes a declaration and says, y'all can go, Get, pack up your stuff, man, head up, go on back. Let's say there's a million Jews. I'm just picking, I don't know how many we live in, but let's say a million of them. All y'all can go, pack up your stuff. You would think there's a million people headed back to Jerusalem, right? Nah, just a small, small portion of them. Why do you think that is? I'm going to tell you, but think about it for a minute. Why do you think only, well, you know, if there's a million and maybe 50,000 went back? And that's a realistic, no, there weren't many. When you read about them going back with Nehemiah and Ezra, there weren't many going back. Why do you think so few? I'll give you two reasons. There's a lot of them, but I'll give you two. We'll, we'll sum it up in two. Number one, going back was going to be hard work. What are they going to find when they get there? What happened 70 years before? They raised the city. Walls are torn down. There's nothing there. There's no houses. The place burnt to the ground. And it's been laying around there for 70 years. Hey, has anybody been farming the land for 70 years? Well, that land ain't been plowed in 70 years. How hard do you think it is? Like cement. So you know what they're thinking? They're sitting around Persia going, got the mall down the street, got the town center on the other side of town. You know what? Got Walmart right down the street. I got a nice house here. My kids are in a nice school. And uh, the grocery store on the corner, they ain't going nowhere. Because see, if I go back, I got to start from scratch. I got to find a place to live. We're going to be, we're going to be roughing it. Probably don't have no air conditioning there. I'm, you know, that's their mindset. They're thinking, if we go back, life is going to get hard. And here's what they had to decide. Listen, am I willing to sacrifice the comforts of this life to do what God told me to do. That's what I had to decide. And a bunch of them said, thanks, but no thanks. I ain't going. I'm not going there. I'm not going back there and have to, have to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah. They were thinking there's a bunch of people live around there don't like us still. And if I go back there, they might kill us. They might attack us. It won't be safe for my kids or my wife. And I'm not going. They like us here in Persia now. The administration that's in office likes us, said we could go home. Don't pay a lot of taxes here. I ain't going. I'm staying. And so a small group went back, and only a few were willing to do the work. Boy, you see where I'm going with this, don't you? Don't we have the same problem in Christianity today? Man, I'm thankful to be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me and keeping me from going to hell. Now I'm going to heaven, and man, I'm thankful. I'm going to get all the blessings of heaven. But all that stuff you're asking me to do, Lord, that's hard. All that stuff you're asking me to do to be committed, and, and oh, God, you mean I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to support the church financially? 
well, I can't buy my new bass boat if I'm doing that, or, you know, or whatever the case is. And, Lord, you mean I got to be there, you know, when they're, when they're helping the kids, and I'm supposed to work in Awana or, or vacation Bible school in the summer? Well, I got to give up my evenings for seven days and do that? You see, we could do this all night, couldn't we? You know, here's the truth. In every church I've ever been in, and statistics prove this, there is a remnant, a small group in the church who carries all the weight. And I, you think I'm kidding. I'm not. 15% or less of the membership of a church gives most of the money and does most of the work in the church. Why do you think that is? Same reason as this. It's hard. If you don't think ministry ain't hard, you ain't done it. And ain't's not a good word, but you understand what I'm saying. If you hadn't been involved in the ministry, you don't understand how hard it is. Because you know what? In the ministry, you can't make everybody happy. And you can't make everybody happy in what you're doing. And it'll be difficult. And these people, listen, you know what? They counted the cost. And they said, it's going to be hard if we go back. And I'm not going back. Second reason they're not going back, they were too comfortable in the world. Too comfortable in the world. They liked it where they were at. They didn't want to upset their kids. They didn't want to change cultures. They didn't want to change careers. They didn't want to give up their affluent life. They were comfortable in a pagan nation, enjoying the pleasures of the world. They were too much like the world. We have the same problem in the church today. And this isn't about legalism. This isn't about a list of things of what you can do and what you can't do. But let me tell you what Christians do today. I ought to do this on a Sunday morning, and I just might. Let me tell you what Christians do today. If some, if some new fad's going on in the world, Christians want to look just like the world, man. They'll run out there and do it. Some new thing going on, they want to look so much like the world, just go out there and get involved in it. You want me to start naming stuff? I can do it. A few years ago, this big vaping thing came out, right? And everybody wants to vape. Everybody wants a social drink. Everybody wants, oh, it's okay if I go to this place or that place and do this or do that thing. Yeah, but you know what Paul said? Everything that's legal for me isn't expedient for me. And everything that's legal for me isn't edifying and doesn't build up. And here's the problem. We aren't willing as Christians to reign on our Christian liberties, listen to me, for the benefit of other people, for the benefit of those who are watching and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We're not willing for the sake of purity to reign in our Christian liberties to do the ministry of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're too comfortable in the world and we like that stuff too much. Let me read you a passage real quick. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Listen to what Paul said. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we usually beat people up in marriage about that. You know, don't marry somebody who's lost. And that's a good application. But did you know what Paul said right here about not being unequally yoked with the world means in everything? Not just marriage. Don't be yoked up with the world. Listen to what he says. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord, what agreement has Christ with Satan, Bilal? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God? Because you are a temple of God. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Is anything unclear about that? 
Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters, period. These, per the, the, these Jews who lived in Persia, you know what they decided? I'm not serving two masters, I'm staying here. I'm not serving two masters, I'm staying right here, I've already decided, I'm not going. It's too hard, it's too dangerous. I have to grow my own food, move my kids, move my wife, I'm not going, I'm staying here. So a remnant, a small group of people, went back to, went back to Israel and started to rebuild the city. Now, the psalmist here closes with this statement in verses 5 and 6. It is the, the doctrine of sowing and reaping. Look at it in verse 5 and 6. He said, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now pause right there. What did we just say? A small remnant went back because it's hard. You think there'll be some tears when they get there? They're going to be some, some hard times? Mm -hmm. You think when they first go out there and plow them fields and try to, and try to listen, and try to plant for the first time, it's going to be hard? It's going to be difficult. And I'll tell you something, we don't think about this here. They go back, they're carrying their seed with them. They're carrying the wheat and the stuff they're going to plant where they can either eat it or they can plant it. You know, you and me, we might be going, okay, I eat this much a day, and it's going to take this long to grow the crops. And if it rains, we're going to get this back. We'd be doing the math, wouldn't we? We're going, man, I'm going to have enough food to last me till the, till the crop comes in. But those who, those, listen, those who sow in tears, those who sow in the labor, those who go out there in a farming sense and put the seed in the ground, God said, no, I'll give you the increase. And you'll have the food next year when it comes in. Because who controls the rain? Who con and God said, I'll take care of it. Now notice the rest of it. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves in with them. In a farming sense, God said, look, you just go out and plant it, and you leave the increase up to me. Now, does that not have spiritual application? Certainly it does. Man, we sow, we plow, we plant, we throw the seed out there. We do all we can to win people to Jesus. But God's the one who causes the seed to grow. And God's the one who grows them. Let me close with this, with this story from Matthew 13. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of the sower and the seed, which fits this perfectly spiritually. Jesus said the farmer went out and he was sowing in the field. And the way they did it is they had a bag and they took seed out and they just threw it out there. They, they cast it, uh, broadcast the seed. And Jesus said that seed fell on some different kinds of areas in the field. He said it fell on the, on the wayside, which is the path. It's all beat down and it's hard. And the birds came in and ate it. And that represents the heart that the gospel never penetrates. They just, they're hard. They've already made up their mind not receiving it. And Satan snatches it away. It does nothing. And then Jesus said some of that seed fell into stony ground, which there was a, a shallow level of soil on the rock. And the seed would go in and out and, and it would grow up and it would look like it took root. But when the heat came out, it would, it would wither and die. Why? Because the root had no depth. And that's the people that the, that the gospel hits them. And men, they're happy. They go, yeah, that's what I need. But they never really get saved. They come to hang around the church and it's shallow, man. They never really are, are, are taking in the gospel. They never really come to Christ and confess their sin. They just begin to play church for a while. And then sooner or later, they wither and they die away when it gets tough because they had no root. And then some of the gospel seed falls in thorny ground. And that's the place where the person is so in, 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 engulfed in the, in the things of the world. It's weeds and it's sin and it's things that they're not willing to give it up and it just chokes out the gospel. Why? Because they love to sin more than they love God. But then, listen, 
the seed falls on some good soil. What's the good soil? That's the soil that's been plowed. You know, we used to have a turning plow. You ever run one of them? It's called a turning plow because it turns dirt over. It wasn't complicated. You just pull it, you know, turns dirt over. They make rows, and the soil's soft. And that seed goes in there. Man, it goes down in the dirt. And Jesus said, when that seed finds good soil, and by the way, who prepares the soil of the heart? Holy Spirit. And when that seed finds good soil, man, it brings a hundredfold. It brings 60-fold. It brings 30-fold. And we come again rejoicing. Why? Because we, we sowed a seed and somebody got saved. Let me close with this. Since this pandemic's been going on, I've shared this with you before. Man, the ministry has not stopped. We've not gathered in here like we did before, but we've been online, and, man, we're sharing the gospel in Awana, and we're, we're sharing the gospel. We got baptisms lined up for the next month. You know why? Because people have been getting saved. People have been coming to Jesus. You know why? Because we're sowing a seed, and some of it finds good soil, and that seed grows in the heart of a man or a woman, a young person, boy or girl, and they come to Jesus. I have had the privilege to talk to people in my office. And, man, God is dealing with them. God's dealing with their heart. I've talked to, to young people and to adults. God's giving the increase. So what I'm telling you is, man, we gotta, we, we got to keep sowing the seed. we got to keep working. You know, you say, well, Pastor, we sow so much and we do so much ministry, and, and, then, and then this is the increase. Listen, some 100, some 60, some 30. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. God gives the increase. We're the ones sowing the seed. We're the farmers. We're throwing it out there. Some of the hearts are going to reject it. Some of the people are going to be choked out by the cares of the world. Some people are going to play church for a while, and then they're going to go away. You know what? That's between them and God. You know what our job is? Do the work. Get out of our comfort zone. Move out of Persia. Get out of the world. Okay? Come back. Do what we're supposed to do. And let God, let God do the rest. And he says, well, doubtless come again rejoicing. Bring it in the sheaves. And we get to heaven one day, maybe God, maybe God will let people in Malawi, whom we're now support missionaries there, come up to us one day and go, hey, uh, God told me you were part of that church, Oak Leaf, down there, and you guys sent missionaries over here, and I got saved. Thanks for sending them over here. Wouldn't that be cool? Have somebody come up in heaven and tell you that. Hey, I got saved because you sent a shoebox. Had the gospel in there, and I read it. I was, in the, I was in the middle of back of nowhere, and I read this thing that Jesus loved me, and I trusted him, and I got saved. Got to put the seed out there, right? So we can rejoice that God's a deliverer. If you're not saved, you can watch this video at home, wherever you're watching it, on your phone, in your car. Pull over. Don't pray while you're driving with your eyes closed. Pull over. Listen, you can accept Jesus right now. You can pray to receive Christ right now. Would you do that? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, how encouraging it is. God, I thank you that these people could rejoice, the psalmist could rejoice because they were delivered. You delivered them out of Persia. You sent them home. God, it's sad that only a few went. I pray today, God, we would move out of our comfort zone, move out of the cares of the world. And Lord, let us get involved in the work and let us be busy sharing the word and sharing the gospel. And you give the increase in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. If I can pray with you, I'll be down front here.